inspiration, success stories, expert advice, strategies, new ideas, and amazing conversations. Everything you need to become a great speaker. This is Oscar Santolaya, and welcome to Time to Shine. Hello and thanks for joining a new episode and we have something we haven't talked deeply before about mindfulness and how that can help us in many ways to become a better speaker and to stand out. For that, let me introduce you our new guest today. Our guest is Brett Hill. He is a mindfulness coach who created The Language of Mindfulness, soon to be a book, training and also a TEDx talk. He studied Hakomi, a mindfulness-based somatic psychology, with the founder Ron Kurtz, and established the Quest Institute Meditation Center in Dallas. Brett is also a published technologist, having worked as a technical storyteller and international speaker for Microsoft and other companies. Microsoft named him as a most valuable professional for nine years. Hello, Brett. Hello there. Welcome. It's nice talking with you, Brett. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But I see um, you have been doing several things, at, at least the mindfulness and the technology through your life. Yes. So I would like to hear that. A bit of a journey. Please tell us about your journey into what you are doing now as a coach. Yeah, it has been a, a bit of a journey. I started off when I was a young man in high school. I started, I was drawn to public speaking and debate and acting and all of that. So I had a lot of stage time by the time I, I got to college and was very comfortable and actually was a performer and singer and songwriter and did a lot oh. of, you know, the musical world. And then Strangely enough, I, I seem to have a knack for technology and explaining things to people in ways that they could understand. And that was related to my, my speaking experience. And I went on to have a degree in interpersonal communications in college. So those things kind of supported each other in my ability to be able to help people understand what was going on with technology. Eventually, I established my own consultancy and helped small businesses learn how to use computers. And I decided that I wanted to be a teacher of technology. And so I started, mm -hmm. I looked around and said, well, what area of expertise is needed? And at that point, uh, Microsoft had um, come out with some server software and the training around it was not very good. So I said, well, I'm just going to specialize. And I didn't know anything about it. I, and I said, <laughs> okay, I'm just going to figure this out. And so I did and got certified and became a, a teacher. And I decided to got one of their classes and the class was just horrible. And oh. I thought this, this class is just terrible. It doesn't even represent how, what the technology does. And so I decided to write my own course and turned out that Companies all, all around the, the world were very interested in this technology and in an improved understanding. And so I got, I launched a business where I wrote my own training and I was hired by major companies all over the place to go to their places. These are the major banks and major insurance companies, all of which you've heard of. And 
go into their place and teach them how to do. So I'm training, you know, speaking to these people for days. Eventually, Microsoft said, well, why don't you come and work for us? And so they called me up and I got hired as a technical evangelist for Microsoft. And I was on stages all over the world teaching about how technology helps people do their work better. And so it became the craft was storytelling and helping people understand how the technology benefits them as opposed to which a lot of, a lot of technical folk, when they get on stage, they're showing features. They'll say, mm. now with this button and this new capability, and they'll just show you a picture of it and go, and now you can see the screen is blue instead of green. Yay. And, and you're going, well, how the heck does that help me? You know, I don't know how it helps me do my job. Right. And so, tying up these technical stories to the way that it can help people. And of course that segues into the whole conversation about storytelling and public speaking. Now, mm-hmm. so there's that track. Now, simultaneously, I was also very interested in the inner world, like what makes people tick, what makes me tick and my communications. And so I studied with people that were very good at this, the Ron Kurtz and Nolan and group dynamics and psychotherapy, somatic psychology. And I was, I had sort of a spiritual bent, if you will. And so I was into meditation and all of that helped me learn to be really present with my words and and how what I say is impacting people and and also, you know, really, really learning to listen to other people so that I could understand what it was that they were hearing, regardless of what I thought they might be hearing and how they're feeling. And, you know, and this all translated very neatly to a public speaking career because I could track an audience and I could be present with how is my stuff landing and make changes in midstream. And so that sort of led me on this journey to explore more about mindfulness and communications. And now I I practice, I I have a, a practice with mindful communications to help people get more conscious with their use of language. Excellent. And this is what we are going to talk about today, but just have a follow up question by curiosity you mentioned we've been doing uh, music what kind of music you were doing or playing <laughs> i i played guitar and i sang and i was a singer primarily for mm-hmm. for bands and uh, i also played by myself in, in coffee houses and clubs and stuff and you know when there used to be live music yeah. <laughs> i would uh i would uh you know, be the guy who'd walk in and you know, there's some guy on stage playing something you weren't listening to. That would have been me. <laughs> okay. Okay, cool. So Brett, what is mindfulness, first of all? Well, that's a really great question. Um, there's a popular definition of mindfulness, which is what I actually use. And mindfulness means paying attention on purpose. So that means you make a decision to pay attention. And in a particular way, you do it on things that are happening in your experience in the present moment. And I can come back to that in a minute. And then also non-judgmentally. So there's all these components. And in practice, it's really quite simple. But it's one of those things that takes forever to explain. (laughs) 
<laughs> but really it means to it means what am I experiencing now and getting very specific about that and bringing a lot of attention very high quality of attention not uh, to exactly what am I experiencing now so the practice starts with the mindfulness meditation usually and so the common practice is to sit down and like paying attention to your breath and doing that for you know 10 minutes 20 mm-hmm. minutes however much and what people discover very quickly is that they can't manage to do that very well. <laughs> you think, oh, that's no big deal. And you sit down and, um, you know, 30 seconds later, you're thinking about mm. tomorrow, the next day. And we, it turns out we don't really have much of a, of a muscle, if you will, for, for directing where our attention goes. And when you haven't developed that muscle, your mind just moves to whatever the easiest thing it is is around for it to pay attention to. And that might be the thing you're most worried about, whatever comes next, your day for what you're thinking about you're going to do tomorrow. Um, you know, I'm worried about what I just said. You know, your mind is always thinking about something other than what's going on for me now. And when you create the capacity to be present with your in-the-moment experience, it changes the way you feel about what you're doing, and also it changes the conversation that you're having with other people. And those changes are usually better because you wind up seeing ways, solutions to problems and ways of interacting with people that you didn't see otherwise because you were just not really paying attention to what your choices and possibilities are. Does that make sense? Hmm. Yes, and we're going to hear now how that can that can help in practice in in public speaking. So, what uh, how can mindfulness help a person to become a better speaker? Yes, so that's a great question, and so you know it can start very simply, and it's sort of a lot of people are afraid of public speaking and trying to learn how to manage your fear and your anxiety about public speaking is a mindful process. It's, you have to f- first get in touch with the fact that you're having this anxiety and rather than push it away, you kind of make friends with it. And that doesn't mean you want to be that way, but one of the characteristics of our, our neurology is that whatever you resist becomes stronger. And so if I say, oh, yeah, I can't be anxious, I can't be nervous about that, then you wind up being nervous about resisting and, and, and you just create strength and you make your opponent stronger by resisting it in a way, right? In, in a, mind, a more mindful approach would be to sit down and say, okay, what does this really feel like to be afraid of speaking? What's going to happen here? And you kind of breathe in your anxiety in a way, and you kind of let it be what it wants to be. And, and then you kind of like get underneath it. It can transform in that case because you're letting yourself have the experience, getting to the core of what your concern is. You're maybe you're afraid of what other people are going to say about you. Maybe you're afraid that someone's going to judge you in some way. And when you learn that those are just thoughts that you're having, that they're not actually happening. Those things that you're afraid of are not actually occurring. Mm-hmm. So you're inventing a future and stepping into it as if it were real. 
And so instead, if you just go, well, what's happening now? Well, right now, everybody's looking around and you're walking on stage and instead of everybody wants you to be there. So when you walk onto a stage, do people want you to be present? Do they want you to be good? Do they want you to say, yeah? Of course. <laughs> of course they do, yes. And so they're on your side. So how would it change the way you present and the feeling in the room is, is if we want to go to, you know, because it's about feelings. If you walk on stage and and instead of feeling like, oh, I hope I do well, I'm not so worried about it, hmm. you feel how much people want you to be there and how they want you. So you see how just flipping that switch can cause you to feel like, oh, I've been invited. I'm welcome here. A feeling of being welcome and supported. So you're talking. And if you're really, if you walk into it and you're really nervous and you make a mistake, you go, oh my God, I made a mistake. And you start to seize up. <laughs> what would happen if you're having the same speech, but instead of being worried about making a mistake, you're more relaxed because you feel the support. You're, you're, you're more comfortable. You make a mistake. And instead of freaking out about it, you just correct. And everybody just is happy that you did because they want you to do well. And you're just, you're just having a conversation with people. And this invites people into your personal space. You, your, your, your presence on stage is almost like they're in your living room and you're just having a conversation. And when you do that, people warm up. And they like you better because they relate. So you're really learning to create relationship with people. It changes the way you make eye contact. It changes the way you use the space on the stage. I'm always using the space on the stage because I'm wanting to walk around and like like and and speak to people wherever they are. So I'm connecting with people in the audience one-on-one -on -one, you know it's almost like and i'm going to deliver this part to you and i'm going to deliver this part to you and i'm i'm bringing them in and if i'm nervous and i'm worried and I'm, I'm not doing that i'm i'm all in my own bubble and i'm just reciting and trying to keep it all trying to manage my experience rather than create an experience for the audience mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting the well, the, the problem that usually happens, as you describe, and you mentioned flipping the switch on. So that's that's the key after all. And so I would like to hear then um, how, how how to do that, how to do that in practice, if we go a bit more tactical. Yeah, yeah. Well, it starts, you have to practice, and you have mm. to practice when you're not under stress, and that's the thing. Mm. It's like uh, people... I have a saying that if you want to be mindful under stress, you have to practice when you're not. Mm. And so it begins mm. with a mindfulness practice of some kind that you have to do pretty much every day. Um, and that's where a little bit of discipline comes in, but it doesn't take a lot to make significant progress. And that's one of the values of not having any experience. It's sort of like, let's say you decided you were going to play the piano and you've never sat down at a keyboard before. Mm -hmm. So you sit down and you practice for 20 minutes a day. How much better would you be in three weeks than you were? You know, you're going to be a lot better. Now, are you going to be ready to give a concert? Of course not. <laughs> but you're going to be a lot better than you were. So oh, yes. it's easy to make rapid progress. And that's one of the beautiful things. And so a mindfulness practice, the most common form is simply to sit down and do a mindfulness meditation. And 
And that basically is sitting down in a place that's relatively calm and peaceful, hopefully. And as I mentioned, deciding that you're going to pay attention to some physical aspect, like your breathing or your bodily sensations. There's an exercise called a body scan. And there's a reason they use the body. There is a saying also, and I believe it was Eckhart Tolle that said this, the body is always in the moment. So if I'm focusing on my breathing, for example, you might think, well, what? how can that help me? Well, your breathing is not complicated. You don't have to figure it out. Mm. You don't have to think about it. There's nothing, well, what kind of breathing should I be breathing? Now, you might have those thoughts, but your breath itself is simple. And so okay. the whole point is to get you out of your head and and to let yourself enter into a state where you can be aware of your own thoughts, feelings, and sensations. Once you establish that, then you're simply naming what those are. Oh, I'm cold. Oh, I'm noticing that I'm having a thought that this is boring as heck. Oh, I'm noticing that I, I'm terrible at this. I'm noticing that I'm bored to tears. <laughs> or I'm noticing that I'm relaxing and I'm, having, I'm feeling better. And I, I'm liking this. The important thing isn't what happens as much as noticing what happens. And you begin to see that there is a, an important but subtle difference here. Let's say you have a thought about how angry or upset you are about something that happened yesterday. And you sit down and you start to do your meditation, your mindfulness practice. And you, and you notice, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering how angry I am about this. The key is the language where instead of saying, I'm angry, where you are stepping into it and you're being angry, mm. you're noticing that you're having a memory about being angry. Mm. Do you see the difference? There's a big difference because one is who I become or my story. And the other is just noticing that that's present. That little bit of separation is huge. It's massive because that gives you a moment to de-identify with your thoughts. So let's, let's say you practice that for a while and you walk on and you're getting ready to give a talk and you, you realize you, you, you walk into the room and you're about to go on stage and you start to notice your heart rate going up and you just notice, oh, instead of I'm nervous as heck, it's like, I'm noticing I'm feeling nervous. Mm. Well, I'm, I can breathe. I can be present with my experience. What's actually happening here? Nothing. I'm standing here noticing that I'm being nervous. I'm not, nothing bad is happening. And you start to develop this capacity to come back to the present moment experience that will serve you in a million ways. You can, you can imagine taking a skill like that into, you know, like, negotiations come you know you're you're having a tough negotiation with somebody and things start to get tense mm -hmm. and instead of making a snap decision you take a breath you relax and you say something that helps you get to a better end better conclusion than you might have had you been reactive so there's so many ways this is helpful yeah exactly that's a good example when you say when there's a discussion coming some Uh, tension coming in a in a conversation. If you bring it to the um, to the stage, I was thinking of a heckler, for instance, someone who is disturbing mm -hmm. you. You are speaking, someone is disturbing you. Yeah, it's the same. You need to 
as you said, switch, flip the switch and, and make sure you, you take the control of that situation. Yeah, that takes a lot of skill. And that's one of the most mm. challenging things that can happen if, if somebody is a heckler, a literal heckler. Mm. Uh, you know, what do you do? And, and that's, a, that's a challenge for real. It's not my strong suit. I, I haven't had that happen in a long time because usually the audiences I'm in are a little more courteous than that. They, they've, <laughs> they, they've come to hear something I've got and, yeah. and to say, and they're very interested. And I try to keep it interesting enough to avoid that. But, <laughs> uh, you know, it does happen, and, and particularly in technical demonstrations where if people aren't happy with your solution or something that you say, and they'll challenge you on a technical point, and this is where you, you I have to be able to out-geek the geek, you know. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I was pretty good at that. I could go, I could go there because I'm a as much as I'm into mindfulness and meditation, I'm a pretty geeky guy and I can get down into the, into the, you know, the bits with them and, and talk and talk tech at a deep level in my areas of expertise. So I, uh, I could, you know, go there with them. And usually they walked away like, mm, Oh, this guy really knows his stuff. You know, I challenged him on this thing and he came away with the Trump card, you know, like he knew, he knew how to better me. And, uh, but not always, you know, there are, there are some people that they just want to be the, the naysayer and they, their ego is involved and mm -hmm. they just want to get their voice in the room. Yes. And at some point you just, you have to be able to say, well, you know, for the sake of the rest of the audience, we need to move on. Mm. And, uh, and if they need to leave the room, that's great. You can feel everybody relax. <laughs> but, but what you'll notice if, is if somebody does that, you'll notice the whole crowd sees up. The whole, this, the tension just goes, mm. you know, you're working and creating this vibe and somebody injects this, this conflict. You'll feel the ripple all the way through the crowd. Oh, what's going to happen? What's he going to do? I don't know. This feels terrible. <laughs> and, and that's that you've got to manage that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. As you mentioned, the, the analogy of starting to play the piano from scratch or from very, very low level, let's say. Uh, so how is how starting in mindfulness? So what would be the first step for someone who never tried, that never had about a book, never never had a coach? What would you say? It's the best to to get a coach, to f uh, join a group, to start with a book, audios. How what would you say? Well, there's a lot of ways. There's a ton of stuff on the internet. There's a billion free resources. I have one on how to get started practicing mindfulness at uh, my website, which is languageofmindfulness.com. And there's a special page slash now, N-O-W. So it's languageofmindfulness.com slash now. There's a page there that's how to start a mindfulness practice. Okay. And uh, I offer a, um, a short, and it's short, like a very short blueprint for meditation, a guided meditation. So you can listen to that, and, it's, and it will take you through the process of how to do a mindfulness meditation and you can then practice that on your own. Now, it really is a good idea to get started with a coach or a group because often what happens is people will sit down and they won't stick with it because it's frustrating at first. What mm -hmm. people sit down and they start to practice this and, and it's really kind of hard to come to terms with the fact that or the most people's experience, I should say, is they'll sit down take a few breaths and say, I'm going to, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to focus on my breath. And it it doesn't yield instantaneous results and they find they have a hard time focusing on your breath or whatever it is the practice is. And, and so they give up 
because mm-hmm. this, they don't like to face the fact that you can't really direct your attention that well. It's kind of unpleasant to come face to face with the fact that you're not really in charge of your attention. Mm-hmm. And, and when you experience yeah. that firsthand, like you say, okay, I'm going to sit and look at this coffee cup for two minutes and not think of anything but the coffee cup, that turns out to be not easy to do, even though it's a ridiculously simple idea. Mm-hmm. But our attention just goes automatically off by itself. And and when you get face-to-face with that, it's sort of like it's very challenging. Well, gee, you know, mm. I'm not really as in charge of things as I thought. Mm. And and rather than face that, and you, you go, well, you know, my life's going okay. So mm. I'm just going to go back to my automatic, in, in mindfulness lingo, I call it automatic network, automatic mode network, where you just do whatever your brain wants to do. And you just let things roll. And most of us get along pretty well that way. But there's a whole nother way of being that is so much more satisfying and so much such a higher level of functioning that once you get a taste for it, you can never go back because it's it's a it's a quantum leap in your experience. But it takes a little while. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure of that. Okay, fantastic. You have also some starting starting uh, guides in on your on your own website. Excellent. I would also like to hear a bit more about your experience in as a trainer in technology. So you have been mm-hmm. doing a lot as far as I know. If you can tell a bit of a bit more about your experience and all, and then some your top piece of advice for for speaking or for for presenting technology. For technology? Yes. Well, it's a different thing when you're presenting for technology than other audiences, because when you're presenting technically, you need to really know your topic. And that was the thing that I was good at, is I was a, I was truly an expert in my area. And, beca- and because I was, then I was very confident. You know, I could walk into a room and I mm-hmm. could say, well, I could take you through the details. So the problem when you're an expert is not so much once you've got that, it's not so much knowing, understanding the technology, it's being able to explain it in a way that people understand. And so you have to develop a very refined sense of how to bring people along. When you're, when you're an expert in something, the tendency is to go too fast. And so if I was doing a advanced technical presentation, that was great for me because then I could take big steps. I could, I could go from, you know, one, one thing I could use a lot of anacronyms. I could just mm-hmm. use shorthand for everything. I didn't have to say, and so, you know, TCP IP is and explain what the internet protocol is and how it worked before I could get to the thing I wanted to get to. Instead, I could just go, you know, the, because of the three-way handshake and everybody knew what I meant. I didn't have to explain mm-hmm. some technical detail. And so consequently, uh, w- once you have that, then you need to be prepared to, to know, to be able to demonstrate something and have it be, uh, I was almost always a good technical dem- uh, talk involves a demonstration and that demonstration needs to be visual mm, rather yes. than conceptual it needs to be something you can see. 
Um, and so you you build and you build to, and now you can see, and you need to put it in their face and highlight it and circle it on the big screen. So if I'm standing on a stage and there's two giant monitors on either side of me, the first thing I'll do whenever I go to do a talk is I'll walk into the room that I'm going mm. to be talking in. And I stand on the stage and I get a feel for this room. Is it huge? Is it small? Where are the speakers? Where are the lights? Am I going to be blinded? Am I even going to be able to see the audience? What kind of microphone am I going to have? Where's the projectors? Because I want to know all of that before I step on the stage in a room full of people. I don't want to be surprised. And that way I step on the stage. I'm familiar with the room and I can maybe modify my, my, the way I'm going to do my demo uh, to suit the environment. Uh, in some cases, maybe the podium is already at the front of the stage. Hmm. And so consequently, I can't use the front of the, I can't use in front of the podium to talk to the audience. Do I walk down into that? So maybe making all those decisions. Sometimes I'll walk in the audience in order to keep them interested, in order to be engaged with the audience. So all of that using, using your room is really important using your, your, your setup. So I can't stress enough when you're doing a technical demo to zoom in on whatever visual action is happening in your product or your service and use zoom features a lot. So many, so many times I've seen even experienced people in a room of a thousand or 2000, 5,000 people, they'll be showing something in a spreadsheet. For example, I remember this one demo mm -hmm. once where there's like, it was a spreadsheet and it was just, so here you can imagine this. 20 foot by 20 foot size monitor and nothing but just one giant spreadsheet <laughs> and up in one corner, one tiny little piece of it was a cell with a number. And oh. the whole feature was that number changing. So it was like 2% of the entire screen. And all that happened was that number changed. And he said, and so he was, the, the number changed and he turned to the audience and he was expecting some reaction. And they're all just like, and <laughs> so, and he's going, oh, but you've got to understand what went on behind the scenes there. I'm going, oh, never do that. Don't be that guy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Zoom in on that number. Yes. Hook that number up to a gauge or a chart that automatically updates so that it went from something, some color to another color that you can't miss. That's gigantic. And when that happens, then you have big movement to celebrate your big event. It's really important to tie those things all together. If you're trying to make show something small and make it feel big, it never, never works. The other thing I would say for technical, and this is absolutely imperative for people that are interested in technical presentations. When, when you do live demos, be sure you have a backup. Mm. Always. And I wound up uh, later in my career, I always had a video of my demo and so if I if the internet was down and in a public forum, you never know because you're at the mercy of the hotel or the conference center and the ISP, you're walking into some unknown connectivity scenario. And you're if your entire demo is resting on what they do, then you are not in control of your own destiny. Right? <laughs> they could mess up the internet and suddenly well, imagine if you would that I'm showing you these cool things. That is not going to work. To You will significantly hurt your reviews by doing that. So bring a video of your demo. And uh, actually, 
I, I got away from doing live demos and almost always did videos because then I was always in control and I could take the video and zoom in on the features that I mm. wanted to in real time, stop and start it with the mouse. And it always worked. and was always perfect. And that actually helped me a lot. Never 100% never fail. Right. And yeah. it's perfectly repeatable. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Great advice. I mean, the, the backup video is absolutely uh, very yep, smart, always, smart idea. Always worked. And zooming in, yeah, it's very important. Also, anytime you want to show something that might be in a big user interface, something specific, small, yeah, it's you, right. You, have you, you know, you can you can imagine because if you look at a computer screen and you see a web page and it's got all these things on it, and you're really trying to talk about one part of it, mm. well, always, 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 as the user, as you know, zoom in on that, and this doesn't. And this is the same thing. It, it doesn't have to be just technology. It's like whatever you're talking about. You want to make it visually interesting. And if you um, you don't want to throw a bunch of text on a PowerPoint and talk through it, that's that's a extremely lazy way to present, I think. And, and it happens a lot. Yeah, yes. I couldn't agree more. Brett, could you now share with us what is your favorite quotation? I said one of them already, which is the body is always in the moment. And and I also said another one, which is to practice, to be mindful under stress, you have to practice when you're not. Um, so those are those are two. The first two one is who, was, who are your the authors of those? Well, the one about the mindfulness when you're not, that's actually mine. You know, practice under stress. To be mindful under stress, you have to practice when you're not. And the other one is Eckhart Tolle. To you. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a author of a book called The Power of Now. And it's a very much about being in the present. And mm -hmm. uh, yes. he's very popular right now. He has a million sayings. He gets pretty spiritual on the spiritual side of things at the end of it. But there's a lot of very practical advice uh, in it mm -hmm. as well. And so those Those are the kinds of things you need to, when you're beginning a mindfulness practice, you really, it's really a practice about being present so that you're listening to what other people say. You're really listening mm. with a big part of you. It's kind of like you got big ears and <laughs> you're really listening deeply to their body language, to the way that they speak so that you can hear not only words, but you hear something about the person, like what kind of a person is this? And you might be asking yourself, you know, what is this person like? What are they afraid of? You know, what's their history like? What kind of family do they have? All those questions going on in, inside of you while you're hearing them talk about, you know, a coffee shop or whatever is going on. You know. So you really create a personal relationship with somebody that way. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. Could you now recommend us one book that has been particularly inspiring or influential for you? Yeah, I think the there's a book called oh what it's by John Kabat-Zinn. It's called Full Catastrophe Living, and it's sort of it's a little bit of an older book, but it's very good at introducing people to the concepts of mindfulness in a mindfulness practice, because it's really about sort of embracing you know the chaos of our inner world, and mm -hmm. and that helps to rationalize and help people be calmer. And and happier, the benefits. The, the the other thing about all this is this isn't this isn't woo woo. There's so much science involved now. They've been studying how 
a mindfulness practice helps people be more peaceful, more resilient, healthier, less prone to recidivism when they you, there are addictions involved, to overall just having better peace of mind, to being less reactive. That's one of the things many people are very reactive. This helps calm everybody down long enough that the, you have a resource within you to, instead of spitting out some reactive statement, Instead, you notice, oh, I'm feeling reactive. I don't want to be reactive. That doesn't go well. I'm just going to take a breath and try something else. And usually whatever else you try winds up being better. So Full Catastrophe Living is a good book for that, mm -hmm. uh, for that re as a resource. Yeah, sounds, sounds like a very good resource, as you said. So finally, could you share with us an exercise, something practical that you would recommend us doing regularly, a routine to shine? A practice? Yes. Uh, uh, something that people could do regularly. If I heard you right, it kind of got muffled there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I'll give you a mindfulness practice that has nothing to do with meditation. When one of the things that you can begin to do, and this is something I teach whenever I work with people right away, one of the first things I help people do is, and let me just ask you. So Oscar, tell me, Something in something that automatically lights you up. What's something that you like? Do you know what I mean when I say lights you up? Like you just go, oh, wow, that's just really great. You know what I mean? Automatically and just happens every time you encounter it. Well, is you it sun, sun for a sunny day? Yeah, right. Beautiful. Love that. Because it's now it's not complicated, right? You don't have to mm -hmm. think about it. You look at it and all of a sudden you just go, oh, wow, that's so beautiful. Now, The practice is to notice the things that light you up. And when you know that that's happening to you, you say, oh, I'm having one of these moments that that crazy mindfulness guy talked about. <laughs> And notice what that feels like to you. How is that different than your normal day-to-day -day experience, right? Mm. You're looking at the sunset. You're looking at a flower. You're looking at a cute puppy. You're looking at a child. You're looking at your your lover's face. You're looking at you know whatever whatever lights you up, and you're and notice what that feels mm. like, and then you just take a breath and you relax into that feeling, just for three or four seconds. You just go, yeah, that feels really great. I love this feeling of being connected to the magnificence of the sunset, the beauty, the majesty, the scope, the scale of it is uncomplicated. I don't have to think about mm -hmm. it. And I can, and it's what I would call a direct experience, right? That your mind is not involved. So if you do that, if you notice what lights you up in one of those moments, you take a breath and you notice it. That's the mindful. Remember we said at the beginning, the mindfulness is several parts. You have to decide on purpose. So You notice the sunset, you go, oh, wait, I'm having one of those moments. So you decide on purpose to relax, to let yourself have the experience, and you're paying attention to your moment. That's the second condition in the moment right now. And non-judgmental, you're not going, oh, that was good, but it's not as good as this sunset isn't like these other sunsets. This is a better <laughs> sunset than, you know, instead you're just being right there. Yeah. That's a mindfulness practice. Now you can do that as many times a day mm -hmm. as you have these little moments. And it can be as simple as, uh, for, so where I live, I step outside and I have a, the sky is right above me, strangely <laughs> enough. And I think the sky is above a lot of people. Yeah. And every time I look at it, 
I go, that is pretty cool. This gigantic, unlimited, atmospheric ocean of air that extends for miles above my head and is completely unbounded. And I love the shades of blue or the clouds or whatever's going on, the bird flying across. And if I just notice that, I can take a breath and relax and have a, a moment and add a moment of beauty to my life. Now, if you did that 10 times a day, you would be adding 10 beautiful moments to your life that weren't there before. Hmm. And suddenly you've added some beauty to your life in a very simple way. And you've practiced being mindful 10 times. Pretty soon, you know, you're, you start looking for those things all over the place. And you start happening automatically. And here's the magic. You start to notice when other people light up. Uh-huh. And then you can say, you can notice and go, yeah, that's pretty special, huh? And they go, yeah. And suddenly you're in this lusciousness together, you know, mm-hmm. and that is a very great thing to do for being in relationship with someone in having a mutually shared nurturing experience. Oh, yes. It's an excellent practice. Thanks for sharing this. Thanks a lot for this conversation, Brett. It was uh, yeah, no, super thank interesting. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Please tell us how, how our audience can get more about you, find you on the net or get in touch. Sure. Well, I'm uh, languageofmindfulness.com is uh, my website, and people can sign up for uh, a free coaching session there and get the mindfulness uh, meditation. I also have a, a document on TEDx there, languageofmindfulness.com slash TEDx. If you're interested in speaking at a TEDx, I have a FAQ on how to get started with that process because there's quite a bit to it. And I would and this should accelerate your your progress with that. So languageofmindfulness.com slash now for the meditation and slash TEDx for the TEDx document. And you can also, there's a button right on the front page where you can click on a free coaching session. I also have a podcast that you can access there. It's by the same name, The Language of Mindfulness. And you can just type that into Google, The Language of Mindfulness, and it'll come up with my stuff. The Language of Mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Thank you again, Brett. It was a pleasure thank you talking so with much. You. I very much appreciate it. And all the best. Best to you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Did you like it? Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, or visit us at timetoshinepodcast.com. Until next time, 